You can take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. In Genesis chapter 50, as you just heard read, we are at a very changing part of the story of Joseph, kind of the wrap-up of the story of Joseph, and it begins by telling us about the death of Jacob. Interesting that so much is made of the death of this patriarch, this one who has had such a life of struggles and difficulties, who said his days were few and evil, and when it comes to the very end of his days, we find that it's quite a, quite a drama that takes place as he is gathered to his fathers. He's 147 years old at this point in time. I don't know any 147-year-olds. I'm not sure people get that old much these days. 147 years old, and to give you context, Jacob is 56. So 56 years old now. He's in the middle of his life. He lived to 110. And, and Jacob, his father, 147 years of age. And you'll remember from last week that Jacob has just sat on the edge of his bed, kind of like sitting right here probably. He likely had his feet on the floor. He had sat up out of his bed into this position in order to be able to give blessings to each of his sons. And some of the blessings, as we looked at them, are kind of challenging to even assimilate. We didn't really work through it last week. I mean, when you hear, Reuben, you are my firstborn, verse 3 of chapter 49, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. It doesn't sound much like a blessing. Um, it sounds like Reuben just lost his position as firstborn, which in fact he did in that sense. But at the conclusion of all of these statements, it actually says here that these were the blessings of Jacob upon his children. And they're blessings um, that are also prophetic. So it's looking back at where the history of these individual men has led them. And it's looking to the future to say this is where their tribe will go. So it's a fascinating time. Jacob sits up again on the edge of his bed. And then it says here in verse 28, after it says that he blessed them and he commanded his children in verse 29 where he would be buried, it says right down at the very end, verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. In Genesis 46, you'll remember that God made Jacob several promises. He promised that he, would, that he would be with Jacob for the years that he would be in Egypt. And now at the end of 17 years of being in Egypt, we find that it was true that God had been with Jacob all through the 17 years that he had spent in Egypt. And he also promised that he would bring him out again. And we're about to find that, in fact, his body does leave Egypt and goes back to the burying place where Abraham and Sarah, where Isaac and Rebekah were buried and where Jacob himself had buried his wife Leah. He's about to experience that part of the promise in this section. And then we find that Jacob, Joseph did have the opportunity to close, as it said, his father's eyes. And we find here that he fell on his father's face after he died, and he wept over him, and he kissed him, 
and he accorded him a burial of enormous honor in both Hebrew and Egyptian cultures. It's, it's interesting, again, that God gives so much attention in his word to this. Um, a correct burial is really important to the people of God, and, and uh, this is actually the funeral train that led, uh, that, that by which um, Abraham Lincoln's body was transported from Washington, D.C. to, to uh, Springfield, Illinois, where he was buried. 10,000 people gathered in Washington, D.C. to see the train off to take his body away. And millions of Americans gather along the route of that train as it passed by, going at no more than 20 miles an hour for safety on a 1,654-mile journey. There was a lot of time given to this. In fact, they sent a special train ahead of this train to make sure that the track was clear. Nothing could stop the very important procession, not of a live man, but of the body of a man who had been very important to our country in a time of real need. They spent three weeks in those days, three weeks mourning and remembering Abraham Lincoln. You'll see, I hadn't known this, but you'll see in the picture there that his image is actually on the front of the train. A lot of honor accorded, and they spent three weeks doing this. We, Americans, though we were not yet born, spent three weeks remembering Abraham Lincoln. Do you know that they spent 70 days, not 21 days, 70 days remembering Jacob and what he had done for the people of God, who he was in their particular set of circumstances in their family? 70 days were spent mourning for Jacob. In fact, it was almost the number of days that would be accorded to the king of Egypt if he died. So this, the father of the viceroy of the land of Egypt, is accorded 70 days. A king only had 72. There was a lot of the hymn. And so as the head of the people of God, you find in verse 11, the people outside the Canaanites look in and say, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Jacob, looking back at verse 33 of chapter 49, it says he finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. This is a very different Jacob than the Jacob that had come just a few years before, 17 years before, and said his days were few and evil. Because you find a Jacob who is at peace a Jacob who in dying has dignity and grace and whose faith sees beyond himself and his own life. He didn't depart, interestingly, disturbed and agitated. The picture is of a man who is ready to go to God. During those 17 years, somehow, in some beautiful way, life had settled for Jacob. He was 130 when he came. But by 147, he's different. And the ancient patriarch could really see and trust God. Perhaps it was watching God actually care for him there in the land of Egypt. Perhaps it was meeting his son Joseph again and seeing that God really did have a plan and that the plan was good. But in any case, we find that here at the conclusion, he is at peace with God and with his family. He's at peace with his place in the great redemptive work 
of God. He was sure, really, that the God who had fulfilled so many promises to him would fulfill his promises to his children. He just finished telling what those promises were. If God had been so faithful to him, surely he would carry these things out. Surely he would do what he said. I can trust him. The grass withers, we're told. The flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And here we find Jacob's life like a flower that is folding up at the conclusion of its day. But Jacob knows but the word of God goes on. It abides forever. But in verse 15, after Jacob dies, we find that the brothers are confronted with a pretty serious concern. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now that their beloved father was gone, and he would no longer be affected. Why affected by, their, by Joseph's malice? Why wouldn't he do to the brothers what they really deserved? Why wouldn't he punish them for how they had treated him long, long before? In 45 verse 3, if you were to flip back there, when Joseph announced his identity to his brothers, his first inquiry was about Jacob. You can see why they would say Jacob is probably the center point in this story. We need to, what, what are we going to do? Jacob is gone. So Jacob, when he did announce that identity in 45 verse 3, he said to them this, and he said it this way, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? That's the first thing he asked them. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He didn't say, I'm Joseph. How are the sheep doing? Or, I'm Joseph, how are my nieces and nephews, and how many do I have now? Or, I'm Joseph, and I hope you guys have been keeping out of trouble. That would have been worth saying, perhaps, but they, he didn't ask that. Or even, he didn't even single Benjamin out and say, I am Joseph, Benjamin, tell me everything that's happened in the past 22 years. He just wanted to know, first and foremost, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? So it's no wonder that the brothers say, Jacob is out of the way. He's gone. Our father has died. What stops Joseph from doing what he always should have done to us? And so they actually sent a messenger. They didn't come in full force at first. You find that they sent a messenger. It's been speculated that it was possibly Benjamin. They didn't want to risk coming into Joseph's presence without taking every step to ensure that he would show them some measure of favor, or at least that he wouldn't take them out at this point in time. And interestingly, this is following the very same pattern. What they're doing here is they come to Joseph, sending an ambassador. Is the same pattern that Jacob had long ago followed when he approached his brother, his own brother, Esau. So they follow that pattern. Esau had not been seen by Jacob for 22 years estrangement, no contact. They took, during that time, Jacob took a large number of livestock, a, a, a present really for his brother Esau, divided it into three groups. And you may remember that, that he sent each group in its own group and instructed the servants to say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present to my Lord Esau. Moreover, he's behind us. And then he divided the children. He divided the children up between Leah and Rachel and Zilpah and Bilhah. And he put... Zilpah and Bilhah in front, and then he had Leah 
follow with her children, and then finally it was Rachel and Joseph because he was there when Jacob met Esau and probably was about six years old. The brothers, not knowing what else to do, resort to the same kind of tactics, and they, they say, we'll just send an ambassador ahead. But can you imagine all the memories that this brings back for Joseph, who was old enough to remember what had taken place long ago with his brother Esau, with his, with his uncle Esau, with Jacob's brother. And they say, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They really couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that forgiveness and grace could actually be greater than their offense. They couldn't believe that love could overrule the day and win where they had been so wrong. They couldn't believe that grace could be a greater protection to them than the physical presence of their father, Jacob. They had viewed Jacob, really, in a sense, as a wall of defense. He was their security against the anger and bitterness that Joseph must feel somewhere down inside. And when he's gone, we're done for. We're your servants, they said. We're your servants. And it reflects Judah's language that he had already said to Joseph back in Genesis chapter 44 when they discovered the silver cup in Benjamin's bag and, and had gone back. And Judah pleads for their lives and says, we're servants. What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? He goes on. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. But there was no anger. When they came to Joseph, there, there wasn't any bitterness. Instead, Joseph weeps. They still don't understand. They still can't fathom the depth of genuine grace. They can't fathom what it is to experience divine love. So the only thing really that the brothers were doing through their fear and through their guilt, was to wall out love and forgiveness. And though they could shut their eyes to these warm, solid realities, they could not make them disappear because Joseph's forgiveness was not based, I want you to hear this, Joseph's forgiveness was not based on the character of those who needed forgiveness. It was based on the character of God. Joseph's forgiveness was not based on the character of his brothers. They somehow now merited something. They, they'd finally earned it. No, it wasn't based on that. Joseph's forgiveness was based on the character of God. That's a big difference, but the brothers couldn't see that. And so they walled out all the love. Remember that they had been under Joseph's care for 17 years. They had never had him be angry with them. They had never seen any evidence that he was bitter regarding the circumstances that led them to sell him into slavery. Never. 
But here, they still fear. And really, in that sense, cut themselves off from the benefits that Joseph wanted to lavish upon them. Now, he'd been lavishing benefits upon them, but those internal benefits, not just the physical benefits of having a place and food and provision of every kind on the outside, but those internal benefits, that freedom, that renewed relationship, they just couldn't get there because they believed still that they had to somehow merit this, that something had to take place inside of them, and, and they were guilty. So Joseph tells them some very interesting things in response to their statement to him. They say in verse 18, Behold, we are your servants. Listen to what Joseph says now, and I'm going to just show you how it plays out. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Am I in God's place? And then he said, You meant evil to me. But God meant good for many. On a personal level, you meant evil. But look at what God has done. He has taken your evil, and he has played out your evil for great good, not just for me on a personal level, but for many people. And then he said one more thing. He repeats himself. Do not fear. I will provide for you. Two times he says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Do not fear. I will provide for you. Do not fear. Do not fear. God is still God. And I am still God's man. And so I love you. In spite of what you've done. It's significant to note that Joseph never downplayed the evil that his brothers had done to them. We've talked about this before, but Joseph never said, it didn't really hurt, don't worry about it, it was no big deal. That's not real forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't based on an imaginary past. Forgiveness is based on looking the past in the eye, seeing it for what it really was, and seeing behind it. You probably can say it before I can get to it now. Seeing behind that past. God! And so Joseph says, I can see the past crystal clear, and it was evil, and it was bad, and what you did to me was wrong, and it really hurt. But that's not what I'm looking at. I am looking at God, because though you meant it evil to me, though it was an offense to me, God, God meant it for good to many. This is not just a statement of pardon but of care. I want you to see this. He's not just saying, okay, guys, I'm letting it go now. First of all, he had already let it go, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that he wept. 17 years ago, they'd asked this in Genesis chapter 45. 17 years ago, they'd had this very same, almost this very same interaction. And Joseph told them then, I will take care of you. And then he demonstrated it for all 17 years. He showed them that that was actually what he would do. He meant what he said. And now he says it again. Don't fear. I will provide for you. I'm not just pardoning you and letting you go wherever you need to go and do whatever you need to do and fend for yourselves. No, I'm going to take care of you just like I've done for all these years. It's beyond tolerance. Just I can accept you 
with my nose plugged, kind of like swallowing your broccoli. He says, it's more than that. I love you. So he overcomes evil really with good. If you look over at Romans chapter 12, and I would encourage you to turn here for just a moment, Romans chapter 12, I want to read to you these a few verses beginning in verse 14, and I want you to hear what Paul says about the importance of overcoming evil with good. In verse 14 it reads this, bless those who persecute you. That sounds active, doesn't it? It sounds like we're actually doing something. Remember we talked a lot about blessing last week. What's blessing? How about invoking the authority of God to do good for someone else? Did we say that? It's invoking the authority of God and his power to do good for someone else. So he says, bless, get this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Drop down to verse 17. It says this, Paul speaking, repay no one evil for evil. And then in verse 19, through the end of the chapter, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, he says, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's not the way I normally run. That's not the way my flesh works. You know what my flesh says? It probably says the same thing as your flesh. You overcome evil with more evil. Right? I remember I had a long bus ride when I would go to school um, clear up in Auburn in the Sierra Nevada foothills. We lived at the bottom of the foothills, and, and I would ride the bus about an hour each way, kind of like the old story that, you know, you, spent, you walk three miles of school. I didn't walk three miles, but I rode the bus an hour each way. And, and, um, and I remember sometimes kids would do mean things, right? And that's just kind of like par for the course. That's what happens in elementary school and junior high. And my mode of dealing with their mean things that they would do I didn't actually usually, I don't think I ever blew up and I never socked anyone in the nose. Um, I would just glare at them. <laughs> and I was pretty happy, I was pretty proud of myself because my glare seemed to be fairly effective. And so it was a small evil, but it was a little evil that I could deal with their evil and somehow have a sense of personal power by, by being able to glare at them and, and give them the evil eye it seemed like it worked, and so evil conquered evil. Or did it? Well, evil doesn't conquer evil. It's not even the way it works. What works is to do good and so to conquer evil. Here Paul says what you do by doing that is you actually heap burning coals on their heads. I, I want to tell you, at this point in time, the brothers' heads were really hot. 
the accumulation of 17 years of coals on their troubled consciences made for a very hot head. They could hardly accept such forgiveness, such grace, because it seemed too good to be true. All they had done had really added up in their minds to simply an equation of punishment and of vengeance. All they had done to Joseph was evil. All they had done to Joseph was evil, followed by living on the overflow of his favor. And this free grace was just too much to believe. Now stop. We're only partway through the story. But I want to suggest that some of us have maybe buried in our subconscious minds the idea that grace is really only effective for those who are right. For those who do something that pleases God. But there's nothing further from the truth. Grace is not for good people. Grace is for people who are desperately in need. God is not waiting for you to catch up on your Bible reading before you come to drink of his grace. God is not waiting for you to break off that pernicious habit so that you can get good enough for grace. He's not waiting for you to mend fences with your neighbor. He's not waiting for you to patch things up with your family before he lets you taste the healing power of his grace. The brothers had it all wrong. They didn't have to have everything right. They had it to be empty. They had to be needy. They had to be broken and undeserving and hurting and sick and wounded and sinful. That's the only requirement. Are you wounded? Are you broken? Are you hurting? Are you sinful? Then you qualify for grace. Can you believe, will you believe, that the grace of God for you in Jesus is for you right where you are? Well, I'm having a bad day because I didn't pray enough this morning. The grace of God is for you. Well, I know I need to make something right with my brother. Well, please do it. But right now, the grace of God is for you. Well, I, the grace of God is for you. All that you need to have to come to receive of God's grace is need. You need need in order to receive the supply. And the brothers just couldn't buy it. They couldn't get that. We don't need to be smarter or more spiritual. We don't need to work up some kind of an emotional fervor. We just need to come in our brokenness to receive of God's grace, his forgiveness, his promise that he will provide for us in the land of our sojourning all the days of our life. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some of us that are trying to impress God this morning. Impress him with something of our devotion or our sincerity or and we're finding out that we aren't even much able to impress ourselves, let alone anything that would impress God. I'm guessing there are some of us who probably feel far from God because we can't seem to shake off ugly sins or habits that hold us back. And I'm telling you this morning that grace is for the asking. Just come. Because God waits with grace for people just like you just like me. In Ephesians chapter 2 
in verses 4 through 7, listen to what it says, Paul again writing, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So look at this. This is a God who is rich in mercy with great love for us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. When did he love us? Well, it tells us right here. He loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. What did we do to get? Well, we must have done something. No. Somewhere I did something right. No. But God loved you he loved me when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say, verse 7, chapter 2, book of Ephesians, so that in the coming ages, here's the reason, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God want to do this? Well, he must have, I, I must have had, there was some sort of special, no, nothing about it. It was because he wants to forever show how good and how great and how kind and how loving he is, and you are his demonstration. It's kind of awesome to deal with a God who's like that. Joseph's brothers could not do anything to help him out. They couldn't give him anything to make his life any better. Nothing. And he didn't want from them anything but the opportunity to lavish on them the goodness and the grace of God. I want to take you back to verse, 50, verse 19 of chapter 50 of the book of Genesis and show you how Joseph could come to this place. How could Joseph get to the place where he was ready to lavish grace on those who had so offended him and still didn't understand? Look what it says in verse 19. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? If you trace this concept of being in the place of God, this word in the Hebrew, it can mean several different things, but it frequently means, well, let me just show you what it means. Here it is. Genesis 4.25 begins saying, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, look for it, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. That's in the place of Abel. Here's another place. Genesis 22:13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, in the place of his son. Again, Genesis 30, verse 2, Give me children, says Rachel to Jacob, or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And one more time, Genesis 44, verse 33, Now therefore, Judah pleading before Joseph for Benjamin's life, now, therefore, let your servant remain instead of, in the place of this boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. The idea 
of being in the place of God is to actually try to take God's place. Joseph says, I can't take God's place. God has his place, and I have mine working together with him in the place of grace. In in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we're told how close we are to God. He says, the author of Hebrews writing, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are close enough to God that we are in his very throne room, and there we're confident because of Jesus alone, though. We're humble because our need presses us to him to receive mercy and to cry out for grace. But we never take God's place. We never tell him to move over. We never tell him what to do. We never try to do his job for him. In Romans chapter 12, you remember what it said? Vengeance is mine. I will. That's God's place. God's place is to execute vengeance. God's place is to bring justice where justice is due. And Joseph said, it's not my place. His eyes were so firmly riveted on God that he knew that he could not step into God's realm without offending not his brothers, but his God. We say, well, I don't do that. I don't tell God what to do. But could I suggest that there are some little twists that we put on it that make it seem a little more acceptable? So we we like the idea of co-reigning, our own decisions, really. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Uh, Satan said to them, you will be like God. They want to share God's unique authority. We'll just, I'll call the shots. I know what's good and what's evil. Or we want to maybe rival God sometimes. Uh, Satan did this in... Isaiah chapter uh, 14, verse 14, we find Satan's words, I will be like the Most High. He created his own reality. By the way, can anyone be a match for the Most High? No, the idea of being Most High is singular. There is only one who can be Most High. Satan said, I will rival him. I will be like the Most High. I'll dispense mercy and grace as I see fit. I'll define what's good and what's evil. Or then there comes a time when we just want to be our own God. We overthrow God in our minds, and we say, I'll rule this kingdom. I'll determine who's good enough to live and who's evil enough to die. These little twists, these little nuances sometimes happen in our lives, and it happens in really subtle ways like holding a grudge, like reserving the right to punish offenders, if not in any other way than in my own mind. It it happens in subtle ways like Nursing bitterness. Oh, I'm not bitter. I'm just really emotional every time I think about that. It can happen in ways like saying, I'll forgive him, but just not now. I'm waiting to forgive until I feel like I can. This is the picture of what Joseph should have looked like. He should have been this kind of a bitter, contorted angry man, but he wasn't. He refused to take God's place. He refused to sit on God's throne and call the shots. He purposely left vengeance and punishment to God. How? Because he was not looking primarily at his brothers or their offenses against him. He could acknowledge what they'd done, but he looked past his brothers, past their offenses, 
to God. He really believed that God has a place and that it's not a place he shares. It's his own unique soul position in the universe. It's his responsibility to execute vengeance. God has a place. It's not a place he shares. He knew that God has a purpose, and it's a plan for good. You see that right here. His purpose is to keep much people alive. And God provides, and we get to join him in his work. When Joseph looked at his brothers, what he really saw was brothers who needed grace, who needed forgiveness, and beyond them, he saw God. They had done evil, but they were objects of God's mercy and grace. If you trace back in history to the life of Job, we've talked about it in the past, but in Job 42, after God has challenged Job, Job says, to God, I know that you can do all things. This is at the very end of the book, chapter 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And another way of saying it is, I know that you are God. God speaks and says, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Job responds, I didn't understand. These are the words he said. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God, again speaking, says, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I see you, and I repent. You are God. I didn't understand. I see you, and I repent. Really, Job came to the same place that Joseph had to come to, the confidence that God has the right to do whatever he pleases. And that all God pleases to do is right. It's really a core belief. It's a question of whether or not we can come to that place that we actually see God for who God is. Who God is in my circumstances with the people that have offended me in the small or great ways. Can I come to the place where I recognize that God really does have the right in my life to do whatever he pleases and that everything he pleases to do really is what's right. But it is interesting, at the end of this big book of Job, that after Job repented, after he saw God, after he got out of God's place, that God gave Job a job. Listen to what it says in verse 7 of chapter 42. Then after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. This is one of the friends, Eliphaz the Temanite. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Listen to Job's job coming up. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And, here's Job's job, my servant Job shall Pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. You get what Job got to pray for, guys? 
He got to pray that God wouldn't punish them the way that they deserved. After all the suffering, after all the false accusations, after all the pain and difficulty of all of this time, 41 chapters of the book of Job, he got to pray for the people who had hurt him most deeply. And he got to pray that they wouldn't get what they deserved, that God would be merciful to them. He got a chance to pray for them, to intercede, and even really to bless his friends who hurt him. And interestingly, it was this blessing that was actually marked as the turning point for Job's external life. His internal life was turned around when he saw God. But his external life was turned around when he prayed for his friends. Listen to what it says, verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Hmm. So we're going to get to be active in actually reaching out to the people who have hurt us. We see God, and when we see him, we get to join him in his work, and everything changes. We, we see how we have done the very same things to God. We're not, the, we're not just hurt, but we're people who have hurt others, and especially we've hurt our God. We see how God forgives us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, imitate God. We get a chance to verbalize our forgiveness as Joseph did in Genesis chapter 45. We see that God has a purpose and that his purpose is good. I forgive you, we can say. I do not hold you hostage in my mind. And we get to act and even to bless. We see how God loves us and brings us close. And so we embrace the person who offended us. We draw near. We Reach out. Some of you might say, I really can't think of anyone who's hurt me. Well, take a look around this room, because someone in here probably has. And you probably don't need to look further, husbands, than your wife. And wives, you probably don't need to look further than your husband. And you brothers probably don't need to look further than your brother or sister. And sisters don't need to look. You get it. The people closest to us are often the ones who have hurt us the most. Oh, no, well, we haven't sold into slavery as Joseph's brothers, those closest to him, did to him. But we have been hurt in small ways with little words, things that no one else understands quite how they hurt. But that one close to us has used the knowledge of our personality and our internal workings to leverage things against us that really hurt. It's not just our enemies. It's those close that we get to forgive. In fact, those are often some of our deepest wounds. But God is in his place if we'll just get out of his place. Because we, like Joseph, are not to be in the place of God. We get to see, really, how God wants to triumph over evil with good. We don't pretend it doesn't hurt. We don't ignore it, but we deliberately invoke God's favor and work for the offender's good. For Job, 
That meant praying for his friends. For Joseph, he provided for his brothers for 17 years and then for all the rest of his life. They lived on what he provided for them. What will God have you do? How can you reach out to the person who's close to you who has hurt you? Well, it's kind of small, but it still hurts, right? Because you're thinking about it. What will God have you do? I want to share with you a story as we draw to a close this morning from a great big book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was in 1556 in Essex County, just northeast of London, that neighbors accused two men of heresy. One was named Hugh Laverock. He was 68 years old and he was lame. Another was John Appris and he was poor and blind. These were the two men accused of heresy and then brought before the Bishop of London and examined. When John Appris was examined, he replied, quote, your doctrine that you set forth, this is speaking to the Bishop of London who holds life and death in his power, your doctrine that you set forth and teach is so agreeable to the world that it cannot be to the scriptures of God. That wasn't a good thing to say to the bishop. And after further discussion with those two men, the next morning the Bishop of London pronounced the sentence, the men must die. And so he turned them over to the government to carry out the sentence. A week after they were sentenced, on May 15, 1556, they were taken from Newgate Prison by a cart to Stratford-le-Bow to be burned at the stake. As soon as they arrived at the stake, remember Laverock was lame, and his friend John Appris was blind. As soon as they arrived at the stake, Laverock threw away his crutch and thus addressed his fellow sufferer. Be of good comfort, brother, for the Bishop of London is our good physician. He will cure us both shortly, thee of thy blindness and me of my lameness. Then they both knelt down and prayed. These two poor old men, one a cripple, the other blind, were then chained to one stake together. And the sticks were lighted. They endured their sufferings, says Fox, with great fortitude, and cheerfully yielded up their lives. For their faith. You see, they didn't see the bishop, primarily. They saw beyond the bishop the healing hand of God. They were not in God's place. How could they fill his shoes? And why would they want to? God's purpose, his unthwartable plan was for good for them. And for his people through them. They just had to get out of the place of God. This is really God's place. 
I'm wondering if you, as you're looking at your own life and honestly consider people who have hurt you, if there's somewhere where you've taken God's place. You didn't mean to. It never crossed your mind that you were acting as if you were God, that you were telling God what to do, that you were trying to wring justice from your offender. There's really a very simple litmus test to know this. Can you sincerely pray for God to bless the person who hurt you? Can you sincerely pray that God will bless them? And are you willing to get your hands dirty in being God's hands and feet to administer that blessing to them if he asks you to do it? Maybe that drives you back to that foundational question. Do I really, really believe that God has the right to do what he wants and that everything he wants to do is good? It's really that view alone that made it possible for men like Hugh Laverock and John Afris to see past the Bishop of London to their liberator, to their healer. It's how the martyr Stephen could look past his fury filled executioners and pray for their forgiveness while they hurled at his body the stones that would kill him. It's how Joseph could look past all the evil that his brothers had done to them. Evil that sent him to slavery in a foreign land. Evil that wished him dead. And could provide for them and comfort them and love them. He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Don't, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is God's